0: How many people here have seen the uh, new Star Wars movie? Okay, a few people. Uh, how many people love the Star Wars series? Okay, how many people don't care? All right, e- equal enough. <laughs> This past Friday, uh, my middle child, Tyrus, and I went to the movie, and we saw it. It was a good movie. I won't spoil it for some of you who want to see it, um, and I won't, no spoiler alerts, but uh, Star Wars has been an incredibly popular franchise over the last four dec- decades. A matter of fact, in 2012, Disney bought Lucasfilms uh, for $4 billion. Uh, so the franchise is worth a lot. Now, why is it so popular? Um, Well, there are many different reasons, and I I know I can probably offend some Star Wars nerds here, but I would uh, propose that it's popular. Part of the reason for its popularity is the fact that uh, there's the idea of power. Uh, The force is part of the movie. The force is um, an energy field which in the movies explains that exists between all living things. That's from episode 4. Obi-Wan Kenobi explained the force to Luke, for all of you nerds out there. And there are people who can control or manipulate the force for good or for the dark side. And so you can have an ordinary, average person who comes up and has the ability to use the force in a powerful way. I think this is one of the reasons why it's so popular. Because we love power, and we love the underdog. We love the Rocky Balboas of the world. We love the Rudies. Nobody can rise up and do great and powerful things, and, and to have a certain power that people are attracted to. One part of the movie that I'll tell you um, is that uh, Luke Skywalker goes and he stands against the, the army, whatever they're called, and uh, he comes and just one man stands against all of these machines and cannons and lasers and they, they all fire upon him and just, just uh, destroying uh, potentially this person. And uh, they call ceasefire after nobody could have lived through that. And the smoke starts to clear, and you see Luke Skywalker walk out, and he kind of brushes himself like that. <laughs> and that was, that was cool. He came out unscathed. We like to root for the underdog, don't we? We like to root for someone who can become strong and do mighty things, even though they might have had the, the most humble of beginnings. And this is part of our story today. There's the pursuit of power, there's the weak being strong in the apostles, there's the miraculous, there's the drama. And we find this all in Acts chapter 8 with the curious case of Simon the Magician. So I invite you to take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 8. If you have a pew Bible, go to page 916. We're going to be starting in verse 9. I want to read this uh, to, uh, to you this morning. And then we'll pray and, and seek the Lord as we get going. Acts chapter 8, start at verse 9. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God." uh, this day that we can come into this place together and celebrate your goodness and your greatness and your mercy and your power Your power which is mighty to save Even the very least of us sinners As we come to you through jesus christ And I ask holy spirit that you would be our teacher this morning and this time that you would challenge us That you would convict us of sin That you would change us uh, for our good we know and for your glory we pray in Jesus name amen simon said that he was a great man you see that in the beginning of our text he said to himself that he was somebody great red flag should pop up right away when you hear a statement like that if you have to do self promotion to convince others that you are something that's a red flag a red flag that says that you're probably not all that you think that you are. Simon was the LeVar Ball of his day. And uh, you Star Wars no- nerds don't know who that is, but it's the guy that said he could beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. And uh, he's a self-promoting guy, an individual. Simon the Magician is this same way. But Simon had a special status among the Samaritans. He did. Tim addressed the Samaritans last week, but let me refresh our memory this morning. The Samaritans live, in the first century, lived in between uh, the, the the Galilean region to the north and Judea in the south. And so what was happening in the book of Acts, was exactly what Jesus had commanded the disciples in Acts 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, that's the south, in Samaria, that's where we're at in Acts chapter 8, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's where we're at this morning. And the Samaritans were the people that were left when the nation of Israel was conquered in 587 BC by the Babylonians, called the Babylonian Captivity. And most of the nation of Israel were either killed or, or, or carted off to prison. And what made the Babylonians so good was how they built nations. And what they did was to bring in other people from other lands that they had conquered and have them intermarry with the people left in the land that was conquered so that um, the hope was that uh, the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture would be forgotten and that nation would be no more. And so it was that the Samaritans were the people that were the offspring of the ones who were brought in after uh, the Babylonian conquering. And so the Samaritans were uh, um, a people that were despised by the Jewish nation. They were people who believed in the book of Moses, uh, but they still retained many of their customs of worshiping idols. So the Samaritans embraced a religion that was a mixture of Judaism and idolatry. You can read that in 2 Kings 17. There were four main problems that Jewish people had with Samaritans. And this is from uh, gotquestions.org, which is a great website for you to check out if you have questions about the faith, about the Bible. First, the Jews, after they returned from Babylon, began to rebuild their temple. And while Nehemiah was engaged in building the walls of Jerusalem, the Samaritans vigorously attempted to halt the undertaking. You can read that in Nehemiah chapter 6. So they were despised for that. They were also despised because they claimed to have the right place to worship. The Samaritans built a temple for themselves on Mount Gerizim. They insisted that this was the place that the nation should worship. Matter of fact, there are almost 800 Samaritans still alive today, and they still worship and sacrifice on that Mount Gerizim. Thirdly, Samaria became a place of refuge for all outlaws of Judea. The Samaritans willingly received Jewish criminals and refugees from justice, The violators of the Jewish laws and those who had been excommunicated found safety for themselves in Samaria, greatly increasing the hatred which existed between the two nations. And then finally, the Samaritans received only the five books of Moses. They rejected the writings of the prophets. They rejected the other Jewish writings. For these causes, arose an irreconcilable difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jewish people said that the Samaritans were the worst of the human race. You can read and and, and feel this tension in John chapter 8, verse 48, when the religious authorities say to Jesus that he's a Samaritan and he is demon-possessed. They were a despised people. But Jesus broke down the barriers. In John chapter 4, he goes and meets with and speaks with a Samaritan woman at the well. And later the apostles follow Jesus' example. And that's our story today, that they're in Samaria and God is doing a mighty work in the Samaritans' lives. So Simon had a status in Samaria. He was a local celebrity. Why? Uh, because he practiced sorcery. Or the SV translates it as magic. This is the same word, it's a root word that is used for the magi. And so we think of the Magi during Christmas time; these wise men who come from the East to worship Jesus, the King, the newborn King. And so the wise men are generally seen in a positive light in the book of Matthew, but here in the book of Acts, Luke uses the word in a negative way. There's another spot, one other spot where the the term is used. Just flip over to Acts chapter 13, and you can see this negative connotation. Acts 13 verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So the magician is connected with uh, being a false prophet. And he was with the pro-council, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But... Elymas Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by... The hand here was a magician who was working evil and so for Luke this is a negative connotation not a positive one so we don't know exactly what Simon did but he was amazing the people it could have been astrology uh, the view that you can divine certain events and and predict the future through the position of the planets and the stars or it could have been actual demonic spiritual power that Simon could control and manipulate and, 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 and work uh, pseudo-miracles. Or it could have been that he was a great uh, illusionist like our modern-day magicians. I mean, David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear. And uh, that wasn't spiritual at all. It is possible that he could have practiced a kind of sorcery that combined all of these different methods and it gave him this special status among the samaritans and as the story unfolds it becomes clear that he loved the intention that this power gave him application be careful in the pursuit of the applause of men be careful not all applause of man is bad It can be a good thing to work hard and to be recognized for that hard work or to serve faithfully for years and to be honored for it These public recognitions are not wrong in and of themselves The problem arises when we find our identity rooted in what other people think of us In other words, what people think of me defines who I am and accordingly then makes me either happy or sad This type of thinking starts when we are kids Maybe some of you had an absentee mother or father who would only show you the affection that you needed when you accomplished something that they deemed important. So family life was miserable, except for when you earned the good grades or when you made the team and your parents then were proud of you and then you felt their love. There was not unconditional love. And so your identity became rooted in what you did that made your parents love you. When you did the good things, you received the affection, and maybe even then today, you struggle with the idea of God's grace and his unconditional love for you, not based on the things that you do, but based on the grace work that Jesus did on the cross. It continues on into junior high and high school, where the quest for popularity takes center stage. You start to do and and to say things that you would never do by yourself, but now you do them to be accepted and ultimately celebrated by the people around you. I remember that first experience in seventh grade where something was put before me that I would never think about doing myself. It was smoking cigarettes. I don't even know if kids struggle with uh, anybody smoking cigarettes now, but I remember a kid had a cigarette and asked if I wanted to smoke it. I didn't, um, but I would have never even considered that by myself, but now with people around me wanting to gain the applause of men, wanted to be part of the peer group, there was a temptation to do what surely I wouldn't even have thought of by myself. Sadly, this temptation to seek the applause of man rather than God continues on into adulthood. It's when you break out the credit card to spend money that you don't have to buy stuff that you don't really want to impress people that you really don't even like. We are so concerned about what people think of us. This affects all people. And don't think that pastors are immune to it. I'm not going to say the hard thing. I'm not going to preach or teach the hard thing. I'm going to say the thing that will tickle people's ears so that they will love me and adore me and think the world of me this is an insidious sin look at John chapter 12 here's a sad example of this and I want to read it to you John twelve thirty six through 43 Jesus dealing with the unbelief of, of the people when Jesus had said these things he departed and he hid himself from them though he had done so many signs before them they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is so sad. Do you think these people were saved? It says they believed. Do you think these people were saved? No. Jesus said that those who acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before man, I will also deny you before my Father in heaven. These people believed and they they had a sense of Jesus was right and Jesus was doing these great and miraculous and powerful things. But for fear of man, refused to acknowledge him as Christ the Lord. The applause of man. Be careful in your pursuit Of man's applause. A secondary application that you don't have in your your notes would be this, this: to take serious the reality of the spiritual world. Whether this magic was genuinely spiritually powerful or not, the sorcery, whatever it was, we we know that there are dark and evil things in our world. In our small groups this past week, we talked about this very thing. As we looked at this passage, we talked about this uh, idea of what's so popular today, the psychic, the Long Island medium, all these, all these TV shows. And I shared with my group that when we were in our spiritual warfare uh, sermon series sometime uh, uh, years back, a couple of years back, that we talked about this. I talked with a couple um, afterwards. And uh, the woman, and I would say they were both walking with the lord for a long time and uh, the woman just said to me that the previous week she went with her daughter to a psychic and uh, she said it was just a fun thing they weren't thinking anything of it and uh, but she was convicted in the sermon time in the service because of uh, of the preaching of god's word and so we got to pray and got to talk about it a little bit and so that's a reminder. To us, that there are dark and evil things disguised as things of light and just a fun time and, and not a care in the world. Let's go and meet with these people. Be careful. Horoscopes, psychics, Ouija boards, fortune tellers. There is a spiritual, invisible world. Secondly, Simon seemed to be a follower of Jesus. You see in verse 13, that he believed and he was baptized. Simon was caught up in the excitement and the celebration of what was happening. This mighty movement of God was unfolding before him and he undoubtedly saw uh, those people around him believing and and being baptized and maybe he felt that type of pressure as well to go along with here's the people that loved him so much here's the people that gave him a lot of of the glory and I'm going to join with them as well and do this thing. Look at this text, which is so interesting. In verse 11. The people in Samaria, they paid attention to Simon because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. He had amazed the people. And then in verse 13, these signs and miracles are happening and these things are being performed. And Simon himself, he was amazed. So imagine what's going on here in Simon's world. He was the guy that amazed the masses. He was the guy that people came to see. And now there was a bigger and more powerful presence on the scene. And Simon is even amazed. Application. Examine yourself to see if you're truly saved. We're going to see in the rest of the story that Simon reveals his heart. And his heart is not right. So even though he believed in some sense, and even though he was baptized, his heart was not right with God. And so we are called to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And we want to avoid the extremes. There's two extremes as we look and we we want to evaluate where we stand before the Lord. We want to know where we're at in our relationship with God. There's two extremes. One is, is always questioning if you are saved and you have no peace and no assurance. That's over here. You're always questioning. There's no peace. There's no assurance. I hope I'm saved. Then there's the other extreme. The other extreme is you live by the once saved, always saved mantra. I said a prayer some time ago. I'm once saved, always saved. There's no question. I think there's a healthy tension to live somewhere in the middle. There there, there can be peace and assurance. Maybe you're over on this extreme this morning. And you have no peace and you have no assurance and you need to hear this from Jesus' words in John chapter 10. That Jesus lays down his life for you and he gave you eternal life and you are in his hand and nobody can snatch you out of his hand. And you are in the Father's hands and Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus was saying in John chapter 10 verse 27 through 30. And so you need to know that there is peace that you can find. That the the New Testament was written, there's parts of it that are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. And you need to hear that this morning. But there must be tension and self-evaluation because there are warnings in the New Testament. And so if you're over on this extreme and and you're never examining yourself, you're going against what the, the word of the Lord says to examine yourself, to test yourself. The Apostle Paul would say to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There are warnings all throughout the pages of Scripture. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will sow whatever you, you will reap, whatever you sow. If you sow from the flesh, you'll reap destruction, Galatians chapter 6 says. And so there's, there's got to be a tension there that we are examining ourselves, that we are testing ourselves, that we can have peace, yes, and we can have insur- assurance, but we're constantly striving To live the way that the Lord has called us to. Knowing that our salvation is not based on our works. But that our life reveals our heart. So you might say, well how do I know if I'm a Christian? If you can't point to a prayer. If you can't even point to a baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Go to John chapter 15. This is kind of the place I always... Go to in talking with someone about their salvation, about their faith. Jesus is talking about being the true vine. John 15, verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and, and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So there's an issue of abiding faith. So the, the, the question is: you examine yourself, the question that Simon could have asked of himself is, do you have abiding faith? In the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for you in your place that his bloodshed on Calvary was to pay for your sin so that you could be forgiven and, and made right with the Creator God of the universe do you have abiding faith that even though in the tough times it might get battered it might get beaten up but you're holding on you believe in even through the toughest of times abiding faith and then secondly bearing fruit in verse 8 of John 15 Jesus says, by bearing fruit, you prove to be my disciples. So that's the question. As we struggle, as we examine ourselves, the question is, do we have abiding faith? And are we bearing fruit? Not perfectly, maybe not all the time, not without falling down, but is your life one of bearing fruit, giving evidence of your abiding faith? Simon's was not, because Simon then showed his true colors. His heart was not right. And then he actually tries to hustle God. His heart's not right, and he says this to Peter, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Man, Simon sees what's going on, and this is, this is the power that I need. People were amazed by me before. They're not really amazed by me anymore. I need something to ratchet this up. And what Peter and John have done, The apostles that came in here, I need some of that. And so let me go get some of that. And the way that I know how to make that happen is to give my silver to the apostles to get this power. And his heart is not right. And Peter calls him out on this. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And he calls him to repent and to turn from his sin and to turn from his wicked ways and the gospel can't be bought the Holy Spirit can't be bought you can't hustle God application don't think that you can put God in your debt Simon was trying to put God in his debt meaning he was using his money to try to get something from God namely the power to amaze people again now we do this all the time but not with money, but with our thinking. Our thinking goes like this. We, we live for God and we strive to do what's right and to follow the rules. We shun evil in our lives and we, we live according to God's word and then tragedy happens. Something terrible takes place. And, and what do we do? We're tempted to cry out to God. How could you? After all I've done for you, I've strived to live my life according to your word and to do your will and now this has happened. We've been tricked into thinking that God's in our debt because of the good that we've done. God is in no one's debt. You see this happen in the church and it's sad. It's people who come to church and for a season, they're on fire. I mean, they're at, every time the church is open, they're there. And uh, they're, they're saying the right things. They're doing the right things. They're lifting their hands and worshiping. I mean, they're serious Christians. And something happens, and they're gone. And in my years of ministry, this happens far more often than we would ever want to have happen that someone. In the midst of a tragedy, a case says, See you later, I'm out of here. Now, we want to go in our theological debates, we want to ask the question well, were they really saved or weren't they saved? I don't think that's really the question. The question is, why did they believe that God was in their debt? They thought that God was essentially a heavenly vending machine. If I put in the right thing, If I do the right things, then I'll get the thing that I'm going for. God becomes, for so many, a genie in the sky, waiting to do and grant the wishes that we ask for. And when we find out that God is not in our debt, that's when we shake our fists at him and leave. God does not owe us. We are indebted to Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You were bought with a price. God is not in your debt. You're in His debt. He paid the price for your soul. He paid the price for your forgiveness. He paid the price for your eternity. Therefore, glorify God in all that you do. Then our story winds up, it ends, and Simon leaves, scared and sorrowful. Tradition tells us that Simon was not saved. The last question, one of the last questions in our small group study was, do you think that Simon was saved or not? And so we had discussion around that point, and it was interesting to see who was more optimistic and who was more pessimistic. But tradition says that he wasn't saved. And so we don't know if this is entirely accurate, but the tradition uh, from the early church says that he was not saved. I want to read you an excerpt from the Apostolic Constitutions. It's a fourth century document uh, that outlines some rules, outlines rules of, of, uh, of morality, moral conduct, of liturgy, of, of the organization of the church. And here's what this document says about Simon. It talks about this very incident in Acts chapter 8. And then uh, it says this, that he goes to Rome. He mightily disturbed the church and subverted many and brought them over to himself and astonished the Gentiles with his skill and magic insomuch that they, in the middle of the day, went into their theater. And the people came and, and Peter was there and Simon promised that he would fly in the air. And when all the people were in suspense at this, Peter then speaks up and he was actually rising up in the air and doing uh, some type of sorcery. That's the church tradition. And Peter strikes him down. He commands him to come down. He, he falls and he breaks his legs and breaks his ankles. And the people say that there is only one true God. Peter is correct. And so we don't know this is not Scripture. But the tradition of the church is that Simon went on to disturb and pervert the gospel and he was lost We can hear his words here. What do you think? He says pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me Now it's not repentance He might have just been scared He might have been scared of the crowd the the people that he once amazed were no longer on his side They were at the on the apostles side and he is scared and he's sorrowful. We don't know what happened. Conclusion A true disciple of Jesus Christ, then. As we've been examining ourselves this morning, and those different application points are meant to uh, examine ourselves, let's look at a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, a true disciple receives the Word of God and is filled with the Holy Spirit. We have this interesting case that we're going to have to talk about this morning of the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit after they believed and were baptized. We believe and teach that the Holy Spirit comes upon a person uh, the moment that they are saved. When they become a Christian, and whatever that time is if it's if if you can point to a direct time or or if it was a gradual thing sometime and when you became saved, the Holy Spirit came to live within you. So what is happening here? Because the Samaritans, they believe and are baptized, and they're not saved. Or they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. But then the apostles come, and they pray for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? The last thing I'll say about our small groups, I I love our small groups. We had four different possibilities to talk about in here, that, that what could be going on. And the, the conclusion that we came to in different possibilities is it seems as if, um, for the sake of unity between Samaritans and the Jews, that the, the apostles would come and anoint them and, and, and bless them and pray for them, and they received the Holy Spirit in an act of, of, of solidarity together as one people of God. They were not separated anymore. Uh, the gospel has gone out in power to the Samaritans in the people that the Jews, don't like and they think that they're uh, 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 lost people, that they're a half-breed people. Jesus loves them, Jesus saves them, and the apostles come in an act of solidarity. The Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans. There's one church. There isn't the Samaritan church and the Jewish church. Now there's one church. Acts 1.8 is coming true. So a Christian, who, uh, who is a true disciple, receives the word of God and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you received the word of God? John chapter 1, to all those who received him, the word of God, Jesus. To those who believed in his name, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you have, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the next logical point is that, number two, you connect with other disciples in community. Here's what's happening in the the early church. There's a connection in one community, the church. The Samaritans are, are saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they're together, unified as one people. As you come to this church and as you receive christ and are filled with the holy spirit you are called to be a part of his church there's no such thing as unchurched christians now you might go through a season where you've been hurt by the church or you leave one church and but but you should wind up you should land in community christian community in the church third a true disciple of jesus christ lives by the power the spirit gives So the Spirit comes and and indwells us and enables us to live and to do the things that God calls us to do. By His power, we live. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us. He's already filled us as believers the moment we're saved, but then that He would be having more and more of us that we wouldn't quench His work and we live in His power. So let's learn from this curious case of Simon. Be careful in the pursuit of the applause of men. Examine yourself to see if you are saved. And do not think that you can put God in your debt. He's in nobody's debt.